We're going to have communion in a couple of weeks uh, here in church, and you've been here probably when we've done that. And you know that when you eat the bread, uh, it's a picture. It's acting out a spiritual truth. That spiritual truth is that that bread pictures the body of Jesus that was broken, was died, was tortured for our sins. And when we drink the cup, it's a picture of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. And it's that shed blood that paid the penalty of our sins. So Jesus, and the uh, Passover, the Last Supper, he said to his disciples, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Apostle Paul said the same thing for us as a church, to regularly participate in communion as an act of remembering what Jesus has done. So eat the bread, drink the cup, it's a picture, it's acting out of a spiritual truth. Uh, Several weeks ago we had a baptism service and 18 people in our church got baptized and we think, what's that about? It's an acting out of a spiritual truth. When someone goes under the water, it's a picture that they've died, uh, died to self. They no longer are running their own life. They are no longer in charge. They've died to self. When they come out of the water, it's a picture of being resurrected to newness of life, now where Jesus is King, Master, Lord of their life. And it's a public declaration of that truth that Jesus is now running my life. And so we act it out, uh, go under the water, come out of the water, picturing spiritual truth. So the Bible is full of that kind of illustration, that is, acting out uh, things happening that have a picture, mean something different, that's spiritual. The parables that Jesus told, he tells the parable of the sower. He says, a sower goes about sowing seeds. Some falls on hard ground, some falls on rocky, some on thorny, and some on good. And you think, what's that about? Well, the the sower is a preacher. That's me. And the seed is the Word of God. And the soil are different kinds of people. Hard soil, rocky thorny, not much happens in those people's hearts, but the good soil, the seed takes root, grows, and bears fruit. And so this parable illustrates a spiritual truth. And so in your notes, we're going to talk about that from the book of Joshua this morning. Number one, every ritual that God prescribes is a picture of a spiritual truth. So uh, some of you, when you get to the book of Leviticus, will ask me, You know, I don't like to say this about the Bible, but the book of Leviticus is kind of boring. (laughs) It is. I took a class way back uh, in my sophomore year in college on the book of Leviticus and on the topic of applying or understanding what all that is in there where they offer a bull and a sheep and a lamb and they built the tabernacle and all the furniture in the tabernacle, what that was a picture of. And it all illustrates a spiritual truth that is very applicable to us today. You kind of have to figure it out. God likes for us to work at understanding His Word. Number two, every ritual that God prescribes points to something more significant and more personal. And so as we read the book of Leviticus, as we read various uh, events in the Bible, exactly what God is, is He trying to tell us and teach us? What does this mean? How does this apply? And uh, it all has a very special and important truth that applies to each one of our lives. Number three, the theological study of the meaning of rituals is called typology. Typology. So way back when I was a sophomore in college, I read a book called Typology of Scripture. It was written by a dude named Patrick Fairbain in 1850. Now you can buy it if you want. It's $36.50 on Amazon. It's two volumes now, paperback. 
And if you read it, it will give you a headache. <laughs> Probably not. It's just not easy reading. It's not what you call sixth grade level. Uh, written by a Scottish theologian who studied the Bible thoroughly and then illustrated in two volumes the typology. That is, what does this mean? What does this mean? The various pieces of furniture in the temple, the various offerings and sacrifices. He just talked about typology and how we can begin to understand the Bible more thoroughly as we apply this principle. Number four, blowing the ram's horn or the shofar as a picture of announcing or declaring God's presence. The word shofar is a Hebrew word, and so if you read the Hebrew Bible and you get to the point where it talks about the trumpet or the ram's horn, you will see that word, shofar. I went to Israel. I've been there three times, and the very first time I went was 24 years ago. Patty and I went on our own by ourselves, not with a tour. We just flew over there, rented a car, stayed and went wherever we wanted. And one of the reasons I went over there was to be involved in a prayer summit with Jewish believers. That is, people that were raised in Israel that became believers in Jesus as the Messiah. They're called Messianic Jews, and they got together and worshiped. And, but they kept many of their Jewish traditions when they did that. And so I went to a prayer um, summit in Israel with Jewish believers. And when we got in there, there was a f- small room, but there was about 100 different uh, believers there, most of them pastors of churches. And before we started, they all got their shofar out and blew it. And they are loud, and it was in this room. And they blew it for like 10 minutes. And I thought, wow. I, I actually had goose pimples. I just, it was just such a, a, an amazing experience to be in that room with all these guys blowing this shofar. It was so cool. And I bought several of them while I was there. I've bought half a dozen more, but I think my kids have taken them all. I only could find two of them this morning. So I had mentioned to several that I was going to do a duet this morning along uh, with the Holmans, uh, and ours was going to be quite a bit better. I'll let you decide. So Jeff Carter, our youth pastor, is going to come up, and we're going to do a duet. <clears throat> this is a big shofar. Uh, means ram's horn, and that's a little one. Typically, most of the Jews had the littler one because very few people had these bigger rams. Only the priests typically had the big ones. So here we go. This doesn't have any melody or tune. It's just going to be a shofar. And uh, uh, here, here we go. You ready? Jeff. So you're saying, what's with this? Well, we're going through the book of Joshua. Uh, The nation of Israel marched around Jericho once a day for six days, seven times the seventh day. And what was it they did? They blew the shofar. Uh, And if you read this thing and you say, what was it that was the most significant activity that they did? Marching around the city was a significant thing, but the shofar, that was the the real key thing, especially if you read the word. There's over 100 references to the shofar, to the ram's horn, to the trumpet in the Bible. Uh, Number uh, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 9. You, you, you know what that means? That means you. (laughs) Everybody had a shofar. 
Everybody had a shofar. That was just one of the things that you had as part of your worship, your, your walk, your relationship with God. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound a horn all through your land. Everybody's going to blow the shofar, the ram's horn, on the day of atonement. Psalms 81.3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel. Do you know what that word statute means? It's a law. It's a rule. It's one of the things God says, this is what I want you to do. It's a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. God established this rule. Blow the shofar. He established it for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. And so this was an event that God said, like, we take communion. It was God's idea. Jesus instituted it. Uh, baptism was God's idea. He instituted it. The shofar. God said, do it. And do it regularly, often. Exodus 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Trumpet sound. Now, this particular trumpet sound was not by a priest or a person. It was an angel. Angels blow the shofar. Regularly in Scripture, there's a blowing of the shofar done by an angel. So, me, Jeff, angel. <laughs> Who's going to sound the best? Uh, I don't know if they're going to sound better, but I bet it's going to be quite a bit louder. Uh, a very loud trumpet sound. Very loud means an angel blowing the shofar, and it's going to be loud. And in fact, it was so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. It was just, wow, God's presence. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. So blowing of the shofar was a picture. It was a picture of the fact is that we're going to meet God. We're going to see God. God's going to be here. It was the way you ushered, into his, uh, ushered him into your presence. Number five, blowing the ram's horn was also a picture of God's conquering his enemies and delivering his people. God conquering his enemies and delivering his people. And so they march around Jericho and they blow this shofar. And it's a picture. It's acting out. This is what's going to happen. You know, the people in the, in the city of Jericho on the walls watching them march around blowing the shofar was almost sort of like trash talking. Hey, your days are numbered. We're going to get you. They blow the ram's horn. It was a picture that God was going to deliver his people and conquer his enemies. Isaiah 27, 12. In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one. It's a promise to the nation of Israel. You will be gathered up one by one. O sons of Israel, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. A great trumpet, shofar, will be blown. And those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord and the holy mountain at Jerusalem. The trumpet will sound and God will gather his people. And it applies to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet... The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, me, you, will be changed in a moment. And so I don't know if you wondered what that was going to sound like. You just heard. That's the sound we will hear from an angel blowing 
the shofar, and when it happens, then we're going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Our body will become like the body of Jesus. We'll never get old, never get tired, never get sick, never get cancer, and we'll be living for a billion, trillion years with Jesus with this glorified body, and it's going to happen when the shofar sounds. Oh, I can't wait. Sometimes when I blow that, I think, mm, come on, Jesus, any minute now, come on. Uh, and so I'm going to get a new body when it happens. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, the trumpet of God, the shofar, and the dead in Christ will, be, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We will always, always, always be with him. And that event will be ushered in by the blowing of the shofar. So it's a significant picture in the Bible. God is coming. He's going to rescue us, and he is going to conquer his enemies. Number six, blowing the trumpet, the shofar, was also a picture of God's people asking for God's presence and power. And so in a very real way, the shofar was a picture of prayer. Not just any kind of prayer, but what you might call conquering prayer. Let's do it, prayer. Let's make a difference kind of prayer as the army of God. And it was saying, Lord, we want you to work now in us and through us, all around us, as the shofar was blown. Blowing the trumpet was a picture of God's people asking for God's presence and power and that he would conquer the enemy and deliver his people. That he would conquer his enemy and deliver his people. So, Jewish believers get together and pray. They always start with a shofar, blowing it. And we're going to have a five days of prayer in a couple of weeks. I thought, man, it would be so cool if I could find a source of shofars for like 50 cents each or a dollar each, and we would have a hundred of them up there in the prayer room, and you come in, you get a shofar. Here, let me give you a lesson how to blow this baby. And so before we start praying, everybody blows a shofar. I might... Uh, have earplugs there to usher out to you if you're a little bit nervous about it. At least tell you to turn off your hearing aids because uh, it's going to be really loud. It would be what they did in the Old Testament, and it was a picture. We are now declaring that God is going to conquer, God is going to win, and we're part of the army of God. Joel chapter 2, and they were in uh, captivity here, uh, the enemies. Israel, it seemed like they were always in the Old Testament being conquered by someone. And so Joel writes about the ultimate in the, the coming tribulation, and he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. That was a prayer meeting. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let's ask God to work and to deliver. The first thing, blow the trumpet. Blow the shofar. Have a solemn assembly. Fast. Ask God for power and deliverance. Number seven, the main activity that took place to conquer Jericho was the people marching together and the blowing of the trumpets. So we do, uh, as a church, quite a bit and have done a lot of prayer walking. We went to um, Thailand and um, Bangkok. We marched, walked all over the streets of Bangkok. A group, I think there was about a, a couple dozen of us and we were in groups of five and six, and we just walked and prayed for the city. And we went to Hanoi that same time, Vietnam, and walked all over the streets and prayed as we walked. 
And uh, we've been to Bosnia, we've been to uh, Senegal, we've been all over the place, especially places where you can't do any missions work. Vietnam, we've been there, I think, half a dozen times prayer walking all over the country. People say, what's that about, that prayer walking stuff? That's like what they did in the, uh, around Jericho. They marched around the city. And they blew the shofar, which was a picture of prayer. It was declaring that this is ours. We're claiming it for God. Uh, Wednesday, if you notice in your bulletin, there's going to be a prayer walking event around the school in preparation for the school year starting. Wouldn't it be cool if everybody up there had a shofar? Blowing a shofar as they marched around the school? Uh, somebody might call the cops. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it'd be a great event. Let me read to you the Jericho uh, story again. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. I, God Almighty, have given the city to you. With his king and the valiant warriors, you shall march around the city. All the men of war circling the city once, you shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city. Let the armed men go on before the ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. The ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Blowing the trumpets continually as they marched around the city was a picture that God was going to conquer and was going to rescue his people. And blowing of the shofar is a picture of prayer as we apply it to ourselves today. Number eight, Joshua and the nation of Israel conquered the promised land by defeating the Nephilim and the Anakim. Now you remember, we've talked about this, uh, these giants that were in the promised land, that had sort of conquered the promised land, that had inhabited it, and were going to keep the Jews out. Uh, by defeating the Nephilim and the Anakim, half-demon, half-human giants. And it was a big deal. They could not 
conquer those giants without God. It was not possible. They were spiritual beings, as it were, demons with great power, and they had no chance without God. Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so you have these fallen demons having sexual relationships with human people, and giants resulted, and the devil did that specifically to hang on to what God said was his, the promised land. Numbers 13.33, this is the first time they went into the promised land. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, a part of the Nephilim, and we, de- and we became like grasshoppers. What's that mean? That means these dudes were bigger than any NBA player. They were giants. Number nine in your notes. <clears throat> in a very real way, the process of conquering the promised land was a spiritual war. A spiritual war because it was against the devil and those he was leading. It was a spiritual war because it was against the devil and his demons and their offspring, and they had occupied the land, and they were giants. They were huge. They were supernatural. They didn't have a chance without God. And so this asking God's presence, his power, his deliverance was crucial. Number 10, our war today as a church of Jesus, the army of God, is a spiritual war as well. You ever read the news, watch the news, see what's going on, current events, and say, it seems like it's getting worse. Why? Because the devil is frantic and he wants to win and he has demons and he is controlling and he is fighting in government, in education, in commerce, in the whole realm, and he's wanting things to get worse and worse and to make people's lives more and more miserable. He wants to win. It's a spiritual war. Ephesians 6, Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. That's what soldiers do. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle, our struggle today, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not people that are the problems. It's not government officials. It's not uh, school teachers, college professors. It's not law enforcement officials. It's not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what our fight is against. So how do you fight against a demon? You can't see him. Where is he at? What do you do? Do you shoot him, hit him, club him? Knife him? How do you deal with the demon? The only way you can fight against spiritual forces is through God and with prayer. Number 11, imagine JBC people in the prayer room during the upcoming five days of prayers, the people of God marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. It's just a picture. Us blowing the shofar. What are we saying? What's the picture? The picture is we will conquer. 
We will conquer. God will conquer through us. We're calling on you, Father, to give us power, to pour out your power, to conquer our enemies, our enemies of the devil and his demons. And it's the blowing of the shofar that will make that happen. September 9th through the 13th, 5 in the morning till 5, uh, till 10 in the morning, 5 in the afternoon till 10 in the afternoon, five days, us gathering together, asking God to work and to pour out his power and to conquer our enemies. Number 12, the devil is controlling the world and the lost people in this world. He is controlling everything. Somebody said, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Because there's a devil and there's demons. And they are working everywhere all the time trying to make your life absolutely miserable. And that's life. And it's going to get worse. Luke 4, 5, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And he, the devil, led him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, to Jesus, I will give you all this domain and its glory. I, the devil, will give you, Jesus, all everything you see in this whole world. For it has been handed over to me. I give it to whomever I wish. Now, Jesus didn't argue with that. Because he knew it was true. The devil said, everything you see out here, the domain, the government, everything, it's mine. I control it. I run it. And I give it to whomever I wish. If you'll worship me, I'll give it to you. Jesus didn't argue with the fact that the devil controlled it. He said, you shall worship God and him alone. Second Timothy 2.26, that, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Every person you live next door to, you work with, you're related to, that doesn't believe and trust and follow Jesus, that's them right there. They're, they're held captive by the devil to do his will. They do his will. He tells them what to do. He controls their life, everything. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't see the light of the gospel. It makes no sense to them. No matter how many times you invite them to church, they'll say no. So how do we fight that? We can't. God does, and he does it when we pray. 13, God, God's angels are fighting against the demons of Satan over the control of the lives of people. 24-7, there's a war going on over our heads in the spiritual realm between the angels of God and the demons of Satan. They're battling continually over the affairs of, uh, of mankind on this planet. Now, do you know the cool thing? If you read, it says that when the devil rebelled, when he fell, as it were, he took a third of the angels with him. You know what that means? The angels now that are with God are twice as many as the demons that Satan has. I mean, this is a super winnable war, but God has said, okay, here's the rules. This is how it works. I've got all these angels, myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels, and I send them and they do my will, but I'm going to include my church and I will not send an angel till my church prays. And these angels get power and strength from God and I'll not give them any power and strength until my church prays. And so if we don't pray much, not many angels get sent. A whole lot of them are just hanging out in heaven. And if we don't pray much, they don't get much power. They tend to lose the battle between the demons of Satan and the angels of God. Psalms 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. And Daniel, 
Remember, Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den, and after the uh, rock is rolled off, he makes this declaration, God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. God sent his angel, that's what he does. Revelation 7, after this I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. You see, the angels are running a whole lot of things behind the scenes. They even control the weather. Zechariah 1.9, I, I said, My Lord, what are these? Who are these? The angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent. God sends them to patrol the earth. Acts 5.18, They laid hands on the apostles, put them in a public jail. But an angel... An angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, taking them out. He said, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Revelations 12, 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. That's ongoing. Who wins the war? So there's no limitations with Satan and his demons. I mean, they're going full bore. But God has attached a string, as it were, a throttle. His angels don't do what we don't pray. And his angels have no strength and power unless we pray. And so it's not a convenient, comfortable uh, five-minute prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. It's not the kind of prayer we pray right before we eat. Uh, Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Or whatever you pray. We kind of like those prayers. A little prayer here, a little prayer there, prayer here in meaningful places, but don't cost us much, don't take much time, not much sacrifice. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 10, verse 20. Daniel 10, 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? This is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. That was a demon, a strong demon, a big demon. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece, another demon, is about to come. However, I, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces. Um, number 14, when we pray together, God commissions and sends his angels and energizes them. When we pray together, God commissions, sends, orders his angels go, and he energizes them. So, why? It seemed like a disadvantage to God. That's because we are part of the equation. He wants us to be in the game as it were. We are his church, and he works through his church. Numbers 20, 16. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel. That's what he does. <clears throat> when we pray, he sends an angel. And the more we pray, the more angels that are sent. Daniel 10. Gabriel said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you. Stand upright, for I have been sent to you. 
I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Daniel prayed 21 days, fasted the entire time, and the angel comes and he says, Daniel, when you started praying, I came in response to your words. Daniel 9, while I was still speaking in prayer, then Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. About the time of the evening offering, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. At the beginning of your supplication, when you started praying the command that God gave it to me, and I have come to tell you, you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Acts chapter 10, New Testament, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come to him and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it? And he said to him, your prayers, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And he goes on and says, I've been sent because of those prayers. Acts 12 Peter's thrown in jail. An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. A light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. I thought that would be cool if an angel would wake up my grandkids when I take them fishing. Because they don't tend to get up quickly. The angel said, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. He did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around and follow me. He went out and continued to follow he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was having a dream. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So why did the angel get sent by God? Because many were gathered together and praying, and Peter was delivered. Isaiah 37, 15, Hezekiah prayed. He was surrounded by the Assyrians, thousands of them. He prays. Verse 21, Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me, about Sennacherib, the king of Syria. And then he goes on in verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. 185,000 of, of the enemy are killed by one angel because Hezekiah prayed. Now that's power in prayer. <clears throat> When I was a kid, I told you this story, I think, before, but it's one of my favorites. Dad was in the service for 22 years, and, and he retired when I was 12. We moved 23 times by that date, and so we were in these schools continually moving, sometimes a month, sometimes six months. Uh, in these Navy schools where people were always moving around, you know, people talk about bullies today. They don't have a clue what the bullies were like back then. And so they just were a lot of them in this one set of twins in this one place we lived in Concord, California, in the playground. They were really giving everyone in the playground a bad time. And so we went to the house and sort of complained to Dad about the deal. And, 
He says, well, why do you let them bully you? Well, there's two of them. And he looked at us, he said, us three older boys, he said, there's three of you. That's all we needed. <laughs> we marched out to the playground and cleaned Johnny and Jimmy's clock. After that, we were the terror of the playground. Nobody messed with the Duke boys. Each of us on our own had no chance, but together we took on anybody. And so God's principle is we tend to do things by ourselves. We pray by ourselves, we should, but there's a point at which if we're going to conquer this territory and see people come to Jesus, many, lots, it only happens when we pray when we pray. And it isn't convenient, comfortable praying that costs us nothing. I have a ministry idea I'm going to start this fall, and I'm going to start it at my house. And I'm going to draw a circle on a map around my house, and I'm going to declare that my promised land, as it were, that I'm going to conquer. And anybody in the church that lives in that circle, I'll probably go like about two miles. I'll invite them to my house and say, hey, I'm going to get the names of every person that lives in this circle, and let's get together and pray for everyone by name. And then afterwards, we'll send a note to all of them and say we prayed for them and we're going to do it again in a month. And if they have any needs, problems, uh, cancer, job, whatever, just let me know and we'll pray for them specifically. And we'll do that on a monthly basis, everybody in that circle. And then hopefully someone else would start one of these lighthouses of prayer and someone else would start one and someone else would start one. And maybe a year, maybe two years, I can see this. There's enough of these in existence that every person in a 30-minute driving radius of our church, every single household gets prayed for every month. Now, what kind of power is that going to be? What kind of difference is that going to make? I think it's going to be like marching around the Jer walls of Jericho. The enemy is going to be driven out and bound, and people are going to be set free, and uh, those that are spiritually blind are going to be able to see and understand, and they're going to come to Christ because of that. So, we're the army of God, and uh, buy a shofar if you get a chance. Let's pray. Lord, we love you very much. We ask that you would work in us as a church and deliver us from complacency. Lord, we get so busy with life, with all the stuff that there is, we just don't have much time to do things for you. And uh, Lord, we have this sort of aversion to prayer is because the devil is working on us. He talks to us. He tells us, don't pray, don't pray. Someone else can. And we're intimidated by it, and we're afraid of it, and we just don't do much. And we, we pay the price, and all those around us who don't know you pay the price because we're soldiers still in camp. We need to march around uh, this land that you've given us and conquer it and blow the shofar. And I pray that we would understand that that app applies to us and that we would be a people that pray together, asking you to work powerfully. And we look forward to all that you're going to do in the days ahead. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.